0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Or click the link in the show notes.
1: It really is to just push this forward as much as we possibly can. Well, the feedback that we've had is that this has been needed. And the feedback that we've had is that this has a place within the industry. We've tried our very best to create something that reflects the needs and wants of a wide range of stakeholders. So the job now is to actually implement it, see how it works in action, tweak it as necessary, and grow the program with the industry. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast,
0: weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming
1: with your host, Harry Duran.
0: Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 7. Regular listeners, welcome back. I really appreciate you checking in week in and week out. And I hope to meet some of you at the upcoming Indoor AgCon conference. More on that later. If you are a new listener, then I'd love to meet you as well. And thank you for giving us a shot and checking out this show. And hopefully you'll keep coming back. This is the one where we speak to fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. And I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, a really great conversation with Tristan Fisher, the CEO of Fisher Farms. He's been involved in sustainable energy for over 20 years. And we had a great conversation talking about the benefits of uh, CEA over field grown crops, the looming food security crisis and the importance of being a kind and empathetic leader, which I thought was really important. This week, we speak with Henry Ernst. He's the assessment manager at Control Union UK. And I know you may be thinking to yourself, doesn't sound like a founder (laughs) or a CEO, but I felt this was a very important topic because in his current role, what they're working on is specializing in sustainability and they do it for everything, agriculture, fisheries textiles, plastics, timber, biofuels, food safety. But in this current role as team lead, he's really passionate about sustainable food production. And they talk about all the things that have been put in place to create this certification for CEA. We talk about plant protection, renewable energy use, sustainability, and the importance of educating consumers on vertical farming. It's a really interesting conversation when you think about how this industry grows and some of the the need for certifications like this that are gonna be important, and how he ended up there of all places, because he's not originally from the UK, which is interesting. So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. If you are enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP, and I'll be sure to read yours out next. Okay, before we jump into this conversation with Henry, a few words from the folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference, so it was really eye-opening for me, so I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me, (laughs) and I really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests, and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. This year, VertiFarm takes place from September 26th through September 28th at the Exhibition Center in Dortmund, Germany. For those new to VertiFarm, it's the most significant trade fair for next-level farming and new food systems. Their international platform is set to showcase the latest developments in innovative, controlled production systems for vegetables, salad crops, herbs, and microgreens, as well as sustainable fish, insect breeding, fruit cultivation, and medicinal plants. VertiFarm is shaping the future of vertical farming and new food systems. Reserve your ticket and learn more at vertifarm.de. That's V-E-R-T-I-F-A-R-M dot D-E. So Henry Ernst, Assistant Manager at Control Union UK, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me. One of the things that stands out for me is the fact that you don't have an English accent, but you're you're with the Control Union UK, so I imagine there's a story there.
1: I certainly am. Not a huge story. I went to university in England, went to school there, and coming out of there, I just kind of wasn't really too ready for the working world and panicked and looked online and sure enough found a job in the field that interested me nearby, and I kind of stuck around there and I've been with them ever since. I'm currently based in Spain, in Bilbao, but still working for Control Union UK. That's right.
0: Okay. And so how much time do you spend in the States, if any?
1: Very little. I mean, my mom's American, hence the accent, and I was born in New York. And I try to go back as often as possible, really, but having family out there and whatnot. But most of my life has been Europe-based, a couple of little forays in and out of Europe as well, but certainly not US-based. How about you?
0: Actually, I was born in El Salvador, but my parents brought me here when I was a year old. I was raised in New York actually because New York just outside the city and I've lived in Upper East Side, East Village, Brooklyn. That's really where my heart is now, but home is uh, Minneapolis now. And how did you end up in Bilbao?
1: Curiosity. I'd had my eye on it for a little while. The Basque country and the whole mysticism surrounding it's always really interesting. I desperately wanted to learn to speak Spanish. And at the time, my portfolio, I had a fair amount of French clients So it took a little bit of convincing. This was pre-COVID that I made the move down here. So it did take a little bit of convincing. And I tried to present as many arguments to keep me in this region. And sure enough, it worked out. A couple of months after moving down here, the world stopped. We went into lockdown. So kind of a happy accident that I was able to get down here before that. Otherwise, I think it would have been a little trickier for me.
0: I think what's fascinating is people's mindset and companies' mindset and businesses' mindset and business owners' mindsets about what's possible remotely (laughs) when the whole world is forced into the experiment and coming out of it, you know, we realize that there is a lot you can do remotely and also that people enjoy working remotely. (laughs) And when they realize they don't have to, it feels like some of that power now is shifted to workers who appreciate that freedom.
1: No, big time. And I think we might get to this later, but even for me, a lot of my work has been in auditing and something that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be able to do remotely in auditing practice is usually, granted, we prefer it as auditors as well to be on site, but it turns out that you still can do it remotely, and that's kind of what this whole these past few years have shown us. And there's personal preference. I think maybe a balance of the two of in and out of the office is maybe the most ideal situation. But I'm quite content to work from home, especially with how interconnected things are right now. You know, we're having a call where you know time zones apart.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what you can do with technology like this nowadays. And I think the hardest part for me because I was in corporate for like 20 years, and so oh right, like, yeah, I was at, I worked at the JPMorgan Chase and trade in like marketing, but Now I own my own production agency. We do produce podcasts. But the mindset of being at your desk, it's hard to shake in the beginning because you have that nine o'clock because all your coworkers are there on time, right? So you don't want to be the person coming in at 9.15. So that was one of the hardest things, I think, as an entrepreneur to kind of like get into your own rhythm, but also like not feel like you're beholden to like a certain time frame.
1: And finding that balance, absolutely. I really, I did struggle with that at first. And then lockdown was kind of like, okay, I can't leave my house now anyways. So it's that kind of threw me for another curveball. But I think over time, you kind of find what works for you. And thankfully, the company has been quite flexible. And with regards to times, it's not one of those like punch in punch out situations. So that's, I think, quite a positive development in this whole nightmarish situation that we've gone through.
0: So I saw that a lot of your studies were focused on marine biology. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I've kind of parachuted into the vertical farming world, to be honest with you. I studied marine biology, I've been a fisheries guy traditionally for the vast majority of my career. And yeah, what happened was I was working for, and I still do technically, for Control Union UK. At the time, we were called Control Union Pesca, a very small regional office focused purely on fisheries. And Control Union UK, the London based office, was merged to us, or we were merged to them, and we essentially formed one big company now. And I learned about the R&D department that they had for researching standards, developing programs, finding technical partners, and working on program development with them. And having been interested in vertical farming for a really long time and controlled environment agriculture, I think, yeah, there was some one aquaponics seminar that we had at a university, and a couple of my friends actually since then are now working in the aquaponics industry. And since then, without that kind of, you know, piqued the interest a little bit. And so once the R&D department became clear to me, that kind of put two and two together and tried to promote or tried to get this whole program to happen. So I'm certainly not a vertical farming expert. My expertise lies much more in standards and certifications and auditing, things of that nature. But being able to mesh the two has been really, really fun and really enjoyable.
0: And I can relate to that as well, because this podcast was born out of a passion for understanding this industry. And I've told the story several times, but I was given a book called Abundance by Peter Diamandis, which led me to Dixon Despommier's book on vertical farming, which led me to kind of, you know, dive deep. And they said, I want to talk to the founders and the CEOs of these companies and see what their story is. Because I'm curious, because it's still a young industry. And it's so fascinating how many different paths people have taken to come in to this industry and how fast it's growing as well.
1: It's what vertical farming allows, right? It's this plasticity that you can find within vertical farming where you have to adapt to all these external realities and that's kind of informs the production realities. I couldn't agree with you more. I find that to be one of the most fascinating parts of this whole sector.
0: So how does one develop a passion for auditing and standards?
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) a passion for auditing and standards. I think that's an oxymoron somehow. My interest is in food and in sustainability, and I kind of, I wouldn't say grew up, but I would say my early adult life has been in the era of eco-labels and in the era of sustainable certifications. And as a result, coming out of university, I heard about the MSC, of course, which is the eco-label that I have most experience with, I should say. I heard about the MSC, I knew about it, and I was curious to see what that looked like from the inside. You know, at the age of five, I didn't decide I wanted to be an auditor, right? This kind of a byproduct of the situation. My interests lie in food and in sustainability and I like speaking to people. I like speaking to people with all different backgrounds, kind of like you in that sense, where I like learning all the different facets that make up a whole. And the MSC is an incredible school for that because you speak to science, you speak to management, you speak to the fishermen, you speak to the NGOs, you get this incredibly holistic view of that microcosm of that world. And in that sense, that's what I like about auditing and certifications. It's not, you know, going through a set of requirements and seeing if things match up. That teaches you wonderful things, you know, strictness, kind of a weird legal angle where you kind of should, shalls, you will learn how clauses work and that type of stuff. Clauses work, you learn how to apply a set of clauses, I should say. So you do learn, I suppose, more technical skills that are interesting in that sense as well. But really what it comes down to is that the fields of auditing that I've been in have always involved a multitude of stakeholders and that what i'm more passionate for i would say
0: what were some of your takeaways in your time spent with the fisheries and doing the ordering in that sector
1: i found that things just work better when people are all pulling in the same direction when people are all pushing for the same thing through the different clients that i've had i've seen different types of work atmospheres if you will where you're sitting around a table with the client and then maybe an NGO representative of a research facility who's involved with the fishery. And you can tell when everyone's pulling in the same direction towards you know, sustainability minded and working together, it just yields better results. Whereas when there's antagonism and when just when there's a more standoffish working relationship, I find that things just grind along, but it's not the way to create change. It's not the most efficient way to create change. I would certainly say that. Another point that I learned is just, I suppose, coming back to what I said earlier, is just how many people are involved in this stuff. And I was looking at fisheries from a sustainability angle for the most part, but I also did some social audits. So with regard to labor rights, things of that nature, and that is a whole other field. And it's just unbelievable just how many different skills are needed to drive sustainability or to drive improvements in a world like this. And that's something that I think I kind of carry with me when looking at vertical farming or any other kind of agricultural fields is Everyone has to bring, you know, that you will not find a Swiss army knife person who knows everything about everything. You really need to bring a wider group of stakeholders together. And that causes challenges, obviously, to reach agreement and to keep everybody happy. But that's kind of the fun part, in my opinion. And as an auditor, that's not your job. You don't need to get everyone to agree. You're just there to collect information and analyze it against the requirements. But you do see what these forums end up looking like, right? So that, to me, was a very interesting part of the job.
0: What's the state of our oceans now?
1: state of our ocean, it's not the best. It's not what it was like before we came along, certainly. But there's a lot of examples of really good work and of massive improvements. The issue is when politics gets meddled into it, and that's perhaps a rabbit hole for another day, that ends up being a huge, huge barrier to progress. You know, you speak to a fisherman, they want to be able to continue to fish their whole life. They want to be able to potentially pass this on to their children.
0: We're talking families and generations, right, of, of fishermen, right? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. They're not the bad guys. They're playing in a very, very, very ever-changing field and and ever-increasing restrictions being put upon them and requirements being put upon them. So the state of our oceans, to come back to actually answer your question, is not as good as it could be, but hopefully we're going in the right direction.
0: It seems like you've always had a passion for the water. You're part of a group called the Wild Swimming (laughs) Cornwall. Did I see that on your LinkedIn or something that you're a fan of?
1: LinkedIn is a funny one. I'm just starting to get into it. I'm not a big social media guy and I need to do better. Some of that information might be obsolete on LinkedIn.
0: So I just took a quick look. at the group that likes to like get in the cold water and stuff like that. I thought it was interesting because I took my first cold water lake plunge (laughs) here in Minneapolis. So that was an interesting experience.
1: That's another level. That is pretty hardcore. I can't say that that's what I'm into, but yeah, well, that's Put on by my friend Max, really cool initiative to basically get people closer to nature. And that's something I absolutely stand behind. Yeah, for sure.
0: When did you start working with the control union on the vertical farm initiative? If you could tell like a little bit of the origin story, like how that started and where that came from.
1: Yeah, for sure. This is not an idea that I don't want for this to come across as something that I came up with. There had been many initiatives looking at certifications within vertical farming, especially with the sustainability angle. The AVF, our partner, had actually published a white paper on this back in 2015. So this is by no means, you know, an original idea. But upon hearing about that R&D department, this must have been, what, maybe two years ago now? How long have I been living here? Three years ago. I went to Franco, who is our director, and said, look, I think that there's a really good opportunity in the vertical farming space. You know, in Europe, there just isn't currently a certification that even really applies to them. Because the organic, EU organic, through its scope bars vertical farming and soilless farming. So I don't think that's the case. In fact, I know that that's not the case in the U.S., however. But in Europe, for example, it was the case. And I just said, you know, there is the need for this, it seems. Knowing very little, just kind of going on on intuition and on the little bit of research that I had done, he then got the R&D team to kind of look into it a little bit further. We did a market analysis and realized that there is actually a need. And the fact that the industry has shown such incredible growth means that you know, if there's not a need maybe today, this would have been three years ago, there's going to be a need for this pretty soon. So got the green light from them. And then we had a look at technical partners because that's the way that these things have tended to go, that we supply the expertise when it comes to developing requirements and auditing and process and that stuff. And we rely on our technical partner who knows the field. And what we were looking for was a body or an organization or an institution which could get us a wide range of stakeholder opinions. What we didn't want to do was look through this under the lens of only research or of only industry or only of a technology provider. We really wanted to get as many different viewpoints as we could. And after looking at a couple of options, we saw that the Association for Vertical Farming has a massive network, very, very present. I think they're present on on three continents, maybe more. And so we reached out to them. We agreed that this would be a good initiative for both kind of agreed on the terms and signed a collaboration agreement and then over I would say a period of maybe eighteen months, maybe even two years, conducted stakeholder interviews or stakeholder workshops, I guess you would call them round tables with you know ten twelve stakeholders at a time, wide range of backgrounds and we put the question to them we said, you know what is sustainability for vertical farming you know what are the characteristics that should be taken into account when considering sustainability and vertical farming. And from that, we developed a set of about, I think the initial set was something like 15 key metrics or key categories. And there was some back and forth on the role of quality in sustainability, the role of social aspects within sustainability. And so after some to and froing, we settled on the 10 that we have right now and from that point onwards then we kind of drilled into each metric so without going into too much detail we have you know energy
0: well actually since this is the focus of this podcast <laughs> we can geek out as much as you want on it i'm curious who are you working with in abf because i've actually had christine on the podcast as well and i got to spend some time with tia in dubai of all places at agrami like last month yeah
1: right she mentioned she was out there christine's a very busy person a lot of our initial contact was with christine with joel But lately, I've been working very closely with Ramin, who is a superstar. He's really, really strong. It's been great to work with him. He's kind of been the anchor for us on AVF side. He's been with the program since the very beginning and clearly knows it inside out. And so it's been good to have him on board for sure.
0: Are you planning to be at the conference in Germany in September? I was there. Yeah, the one coming up, sorry, next year. (laughs) Oh, next year? Yeah.
1: That's a long time from now. I would imagine so. To be honest with you, I would imagine so. Yes, I probably will
0: be. So I actually I'm supposed to have a conversation with uh, Tia today before this call, but I don't know if you could see through this window. We got some snow here, so I was out shoveling.
1: <laughs> oh no. I can't see. It's a white glow. Yeah, yeah,
0: window. yeah. We're chatting on Friday, so the timing's interesting. Yeah, so if you want to just maybe, you know, walk us through, you know, what those 10 points are because I think it'd be helpful for this audience to understand, you know, the level of detail that you've gone through in terms of putting this together.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I should say perhaps a bit of background on these criteria. This is nothing that one person has come up with. So a lot of times when we talk about criteria and we talk about certifications, it's like, why did you put that in there? It was absolutely a multi-stakeholder process and there was a whole lot of back and forth.
0: We don't want Henry to be getting a bunch of emails after this. I
1: hate mail. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> Published. No, but honestly, all jokes aside please do send in any queries or, or any issues that you do have. This is part of refining a standard and a set of requirements. And I suppose another kind of precursor to this is, or not, not even precursor, a word ahead of the presentation of these requirements is that this is version one. This standard is meant to be kind of a living, breathing document. And that doesn't mean that we're going to be iterating every two weeks, but that does mean that We are mindful that this is kind of the first crack at this that someone has had, that an organization has taken. And so as a result, you know, this is version one. We are absolutely looking to improve. We're looking to kind of move into different direction in the future, which I'm sure we'll get into with the questions as we go along. But for the time being, we've come up with a couple of criteria, the first being energy use. So that's why it's number one, I suppose. That's really, I think, yeah. Every single stakeholder really brought that one up. You know, it's the, it's the big one. It's energy use. We also look at renewable energy use because that's geographically more applicable in some instances than others, but we recognize that that's kind of where energy is trending. So including that in at this early stage was definitely a desired component from the stakeholders. We've also got water use in there. So we got? we got nutrients, water nutrients, substrate use. So that's the matrix in which the roots would grow a plant protection plan. So that has to do with, well, what it says in the name, any type of protection measures that are in place for the plant. So this is kind of teetering on some quality aspects, but we really couldn't get this out of the program. I tried, but this was absolutely, you know, hammered into us that plant protection is an essential part of sustainability when it comes to vertical farming.
0: How are they defining plant protection?
1: So it's basically any measures, any management measures taken to ensure the protection of the crop. So one of the requirements is that no plant protection product can be applied directly on the plant, which is, I really don't have much background, but I felt that that was quite severe, but it was a pretty adamant sentiment that applying protection products directly to plants is below the bar that the stakeholders wish to set for sustainability. Beyond plant protection, we have the use of space average distance traveled, otherwise known as food miles, Point nine is seeds and seedlings, and then finally waste and essentially kind of waste management. So this was our first stab at the criteria for sustainability within vertical farming. The general approach that we've taken has been data collection and continuous improvement. So whereas for other fields of agriculture or wild capture, like fisheries, for example, you know, those are forms of agriculture that have been around for maybe 9,000 years, something like that. Vertical farming has been around for an infinitely small amount of time compared to the conventional. So the databases, benchmarks that exist for these other forms of agriculture and the vast pools of information just don't exist yet for vertical farming. So our desire is to basically take the first step on a road to a quantitative approach, feedback that we've gotten is, you know, what are the benchmarks? What are the levels we're setting at? How many liters of water is is sustainable? The answer is that any number that we would give you right now would not be well-founded due to A, the different production realities that we mentioned earlier and the different systems that are in place, and B, just the lack of a wide database for us to be able to base those benchmarks upon. And in order for us to begin that work, we need to start from a point of data collection, and continuous improvement to drive sustainable initiatives and practices. So this was an approach that the stakeholders generally agreed with, that was achievable, but not flimsy, but that at the same time kind of at its core will drive improvements within the industry. And that's what we hopefully set out to do.
0: When was the first round published?
1: So these documents all now belong to AVF. They're the program owners. Control Union UK are an auditing body these were published, I want to say, just ahead of the summit in September this year. I'm not sure of the publication schedule.
0: Yeah. And and just for the benefit of the listener, we're at end of November 2022. From the folks that were participating as stakeholders or even companies outside, I know it's still early days, relatively speaking, but what was some of the response and feedback that you were getting?
1: So interestingly enough, some of the response was not quantitative enough. You know, tell us the number and we'll try and reach that. So that was a piece of feedback, which is encouraging and that great sign for, for sustainability within the industry, but it's just not something that we can realistically achieve right now. And so that was one big piece of feedback. The other big piece of feedback, it was supposed more question than anything, but it was inquiries on price and on process and on things of that nature. But generally, The feedback when we presented it in Dortmund, there were some challenges on the program, especially on the seeds component, which was really good to hear and absolutely has been noted. But generally, the thought was that it was a positive development. We've had a few inquiries from producers. We've had a fair few inquiries from consultancy agencies, just looking to learn a little bit more about the program, about the accreditation behind it. So generally, I think the reception's been positive. But at least in Europe and maybe in the US, I suppose you could tell me the energy situation right now is certainly challenging to say the least. So we're looking at how we might be able to be mindful of that in the way we introduce the standard in the way, because we know that costs are obviously quite a big issue. So we're trying to basically make uptake as easy as possible while, you know, remaining a viable business.
0: And what is the cost? Is it something that gets renewed every year or what's the process look like?
1: The current process has been designed to basically highlight as many red flags as possible from as far away from the audit as possible. Because we know that the audit burden and the cost burden of running such a program can be high, we've developed it to be basically a two-part system. Part one of the audit is a desk-based review where the CAB or the Certification Assessment Body, C-A-B-CAB, sorry, the jargon is baked into me now. We conduct a document review, confirm the scope of the audit, and essentially at that point, by collecting as much information as they're able to send remotely, we can rapidly appraise where they might stand against the checklist and say, okay, without providing consultancy, we just say, this is where you will find another et etc. And at that point, we send those outputs back to the client or to the producer, and if they feel that okay, no, there's too many non-conformities, there's no way we're going to be certified, let's pump the brakes, implement changes, and then try again, that's possible, rather than having to pay and having to organize the administrative burden of having a full audit, which can take, we estimate it'll take four months or so from start to finish. And so essentially by having this first step in place, that avoids A, cost, and B, uh, administrative burden. So hopefully facilitating uptake. That's kind of a key thing that we saw the need to build in as quick as possible.
0: And have the costs been finalized yet?
1: Costs are situation and scope depending. In a multi-site farm, logically it'll take more time to go through it all and so the costs will be higher. The licensing costs so associated to using the eco-label and things of that nature, I believe have been finalized. But you might have to check that on your conversation on Friday.
0: And all that will be found on the AVF site?
1: Yeah, as far as I'm aware, there's also a site for the program, which I do not know off the top of my head.
0: Yeah, you can just send it over to me and we'll make sure we put it in the show notes as well. Was this the first time for you going through this process with a new industry that you were still learning yourself?
1: Yes. Thankfully, I didn't do it completely by myself. I had a whole team, a significant portion of the R&D team at Control Union UK backing me up and I could rely on the boundless expertise from AVF and their members. But yeah, this was a first kind of step outside of the marine realm.
0: <laughs> was there any parallels in the work you've done with the fisheries that you saw when you're doing it with vertical farming?
1: Yeah. So this mainly had to do with the auditing side, which is the most fun and wonderful side of a certifications program. But it's something that you notice is a degree of fatigue might set in during repeated audits. Either the frequency or the intensity of an audit is becomes a burden. It eventually becomes very significant to the auditee.
0: And a distraction, I would imagine, as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. The successful labels that you kind of know and hear about, it's worth the while, right? Because the label either achieves, you know, access to different markets, price differentiation, product differentiation, that thing things of that nature. We're in the process in the conversation of speaking with a couple of farms to kick off the first inspections and to kick off the first audits. So we're hoping to have those lined up for early 2023. There has been interest, particularly in the Middle East, there's been a fair amount of interest there, and we, we have a fair amount of conversations ongoing there, not only with farms, also with bodies looking to participate in certification and in the, the kind of wider program framework. But I would say, you no, know, the key tools that I took out from the marine into the vertical farming, and granted, there's, you wouldn't imagine that there's so many applicable ones, is, is certainly to keep the burden as light as possible while making the standard as robust as you can within that constraint.
0: I imagine this is something as, you know, we're hearing of farms closing in the news, you know, in the past year. And so I think anyone who's entering the industry and people thinking of starting new farms, you know, this is probably something that they should have on their radar or even be considering because from a certification perspective is something that they most likely would want for their farm. And so I think anyone who's interested in getting started, I think it would behoove them to look at the work you guys have done and put into place.
1: I think part of the reason is because, Vertical farming and the fact that it's kind of still in a nascent stage is not necessarily well known by the general consumer. It's starting to get there, but... The justification for the difference in price points or factors like that might not be so clear to the average consumer, and this is part of what labels allow. Now, you see that taken to the extreme at times with greenwashing and with false claims and things of that nature, and the legislation is starting to catch up to that, so thankfully, hopefully, that won't be a problem for too much longer. But really, when it comes to setting a product apart and to also just acknowledge good practices... Labels remain a really good tool for that. That the strong labels remain a really powerful tool, and eco labels have come under significant criticism as of late. But I maintain that it remains a powerful tool for the consumers as long as the consumer is, is aware of what that eco label represents.
0: Yeah, it's almost like that's part of the education process as well, because you know the company is demonstrating through this process that they've you know met the standards that you just outlined, but also. For the consumer, just what does it mean to see a label that they've never seen before? And does it have any significance for them? And is it all for naught if they're looking at it? Does it sway them in a way where they can justify the higher price or the comfort level in knowing that their food is of a higher quality because of these standards? And I don't know where that falls in terms of control unions purview or AVF, but I feel like there's a need for educating the consumer as well (laughs) into what it is and where the benefits are.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I suppose this isn't to kind of push the burden away from ourselves, but there's a fine line to tread when you're an auditing body kind of campaigning for a certification scheme, right? That raises questions of impartiality and independence and things of that nature. So we are, of course, we're not on mute. We are making our channels aware of the certification. You'll look to the AVF and to the certification body itself to Rather, the certification owner, the standard owner itself, to conduct a lot of that outreach. Certainly. Yeah.
0: So, what's next for you now that this process is is completed?
1: Can't get a client, get someone <laughs> on board, get my boss off my back. But no, no, I, it really is to just push this forward as much as we possibly can. Well, the feedback that we've had is that this has been needed, and the feedback that we've had is that this has a place within the industry. We've tried our very best to create something that reflects the needs and wants of a wide range of stakeholders. So the job now is to actually implement it, see how it works in action, tweak it as necessary, and grow the program with the industry. Now, this is starting to no longer become my responsibility in that I'm now just a certifier, but to support the AVF as much as possible within our role to help the program grow alongside the industry. So yeah, hopefully lots of work coming up.
0: (laughs) What's top of your list uh, if you look out over the next six months of things you're looking to get done or you'd like to get done?
1: Control Union internally, we've got the whole kind of arborescence, I suppose you could call it. We have the whole structure to house and to operate this assessment, but it's about training people and building capacity. So I know the standard, I helped write it. It's now about making use of Control Union, of course, only one small branch of Control Union in general, which is a global kind of certification entity. We're present in 98 countries or 95 countries, 90 countries, a large number of countries. And my job is to build capacity within these different countries for auditors to be able to do this work. I don't want to fly around the world to do this. I would love to, but really that A, defeats the purpose of sustainability a little bit and B, would rack up a significant bill. The job for me is to build capacity with our offices and with our colleagues in the different countries and to promote the standard within our remit. That's my big one. Obviously, I'm still involved with fisheries, and there's another program that I'm involved with, which we're not allowed to talk about too much (laughs) currently. When that's
0: public, just let us know, and we'll be sure to promote your efforts there. So I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this. It's really fascinating to see how the industry is evolving, and when things start to be put into place, it's a really positive sign that the industry is maturing and moving in the right direction.
1: Yeah, and we've noticed that the industry is is pretty fragmented still, and there's still a little bit of everyone kind of working in their own corner. And we hope that by creating this framework for a lot of data to feed into it, but of course data is protected, anonymized, the whole nine yards, we absolutely wouldn't want it to be involved in privacy or security breaches. But to create kind of an umbrella under which... A cohesive unit can be formed. So, whereas it's not necessarily under one company, but you'll have a certified consortium of companies, which I think would be really good for the industry. You know, you hear about the car manufacturing industry in the US in the 1920s, I think there were 50 odd companies or something like that. And today there's four. You know, that has yet to happen to vertical farming, but hopefully we can start with this program pushing it in that direction.
0: Yeah, the other analogy, which I thought was interesting, I had a conversation with this topic with a recent guest about how related to the automobile industry, Oh Planet Detroit, that's who I was speaking to. It's an interesting model because not only do they have the major car manufacturers, but they built this really great ecosystem of suppliers and partners and vendors and all working together in a cohesive way and synergistic way. And I think we still have yet to see that. I can see where there's opportunities for that to happen in vertical farming as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, At the show in Dortmund, you start to see the, the technology providers and things of that nature. And you can see, as you mentioned, the whole ecosystem around the actual end product. It's going to be fascinating to watch it grow in the coming years. Certainly. Yeah.
0: So given the audience, folks, super interested in the world of vertical farming, uh, a lot of the CEOs and founders listen to this show as well. So I'd like to leave a little time at the end of each conversation for you, if you have a message specifically for this audience, You know, if there's anything that comes to mind that you think would be helpful for folks in this space to hear.
1: Sure. Well, check us out, the Sustainable Indoor Farming Program. If you have any questions on the program at all, feel free to reach out to me, Henry Ernst. I'm sure the the email will be provided somehow to some capacity with this podcast. We've been working really hard on it for a really long time, and we've really tried to create something that applies on a global scale without watering it down to the point where the requirements are not rigid or robust or maintain, uphold any standards. It's been a challenge, but it's been a lot of fun to do. And hopefully we've created something of, of value, which serves to improve sustainability within the field. I look forward to hearing from you.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll make sure to include all those links. The main site is controlunion.com. Is that right? UK.controlunion.com. That's the one. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing a little bit of your backstory as well. That's always fun to hear how folks end up in this space and make sure you keep us apprised. And if there's anything we can do to support the initiative is just let us know and we'll be sure to share those efforts as well.
1: Yeah, tell your friends. know, but thank you so much for having me on, for reaching out. It's always great to hear, and I could talk about this all day, so really appreciate you reaching out.
0: Yeah, thanks for your time. Cheers. Thanks again to Henry for making it onto this show. It was really interesting to hear all the work that's being done for certification at Control Union, so it'll be interesting to see where this uh, ends up and, and how it progresses as more and more people hear about it and support it. Special thanks to our Season 7 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking into a vertical form and don't know where to start or which technology will suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at Cultivated.com, and that's spelled dot dcom Just leave out that last E. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference, so it was really eye-opening for me, so I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me, <laughs> and I uh, really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests, and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming in CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co and see if a podcast is right for you. As a reminder, if you're enjoying this show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Tune in next week for another conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. And this time it's a round two visit from Tobias Pegg of Square Roots. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.